0: Hello and welcome to the Bite Size Bible Study Podcast. I am your host, Phil Shiroki, and today we are going to continue our look at Matthew chapter 6. We are looking at Jesus, where he talks about fasting being done only to be seen by God and God alone. This is in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Again, Jesus addresses the hypocrites, the pretenders, the religious people of the day, also known as the scribes and the Pharisees. And he commands us that when we fast, when we do anything for God, it's to be seen by him and him alone because it is between us and God. So, without any further ado, let's continue our look at the Sermon on the Mount. Again, Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18, where Jesus instructs and commands us to fast before God only. All right, now let's flip up to Luke. We're going to look at chapter 18, we're going to look at verses 19 through 14, or excuse me, 18 verses 9 through 14. Um, And basically, I wanted to look at this because, again, we're talking about the condition of the heart. We're talking about genuine um, repentance, genuine fasting versus, you know, just presenting a false image so that Other people see what you're doing and think you're something when really you're just being a pretender or a hypocrite. So, this is a parable. This is called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Again, taught by Jesus, Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Also, he, Jesus, spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So that's the quick parable there again, uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. I can definitely relate to that. I've been that tax collector more than once. And, um, you know, uh, uh, you can see by the Pharisee, the religious people, the legalistic people, they get an arrogance and pride about them because they falsely think that they are doing something great on their own. They are doing nothing but uh, presenting a false image because, again, it's all about what's in the heart. And like Jesus says, the tax collector who was so repentant that he wouldn't even approach um, or raise his eyes to heaven, and w- he was just basically crying and, re- and repenting before the Lord, that was the one with the true heart. Although he was guilty of much sin, he was also very repent repentant for his sin, and God forgave him because he was of a pure heart, and he was truly repenting, and I'm sure that tax collector went away and hopefully sinned no more. So we're going to look at the notes here for, again, um, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, where it says, not all prayer is genuine. Attitude is just as important as persistence. Jesus also corrects the mistaken notion that righteousness is a human achievement instead of a gift of God's grace. A religion based upon a merit system leads to religious pride. Some Pharisees went beyond the requirements of the law by tithing even what they bought, lest they make use of goods which had not been tithed. A sinner is literally the sinner more than all others. He deeply feels his guilt. Um, So, again, quickly there, it says, you know, The notion of righteousness is a human achievement instead of a gift of God's grace. I've shared this a little while, you know, a few times, but years ago, back when I was in high school, I got caught up with a legalistic church for a couple of years. And I know this exact pride that they're talking about here. And I, that's why I have such an understanding of it, because um, when you are in legalism and you think that you, by not doing certain things, that it, it creates a false sense of pride, and then, ironically, you tend to fall to things a lot more often and struggle with sin a lot more often because... You're relying on yourself and not recognizing that there's only righteousness and grace found in God. So when you yield your life to God, it's amazing how you can really walk that straight and narrow path, you know, because you're focused on the Lord and you recognize that we can do nothing on our own. Righteousness is God's, it's not ours. Grace is a free gift from God, salvation is a free gift from God. That's it, it's simply us accepting it and walking out the righteousness that God, you know, puts before us, if you will. And it's only in totally recognizing that you cannot do anything on your own in this spiritual capacity, other than totally rely on the Lord. And then there is victory in Jesus. We sing that song and it's a very true song. It's, there's a lot of truth in, there's all the truth in recognizing that, again, we can do nothing on our own. We do it that's just, again, the 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 text where Jesus is saying, when you sit and you fast and you look as if you're doing something for God, that I guarantee you that that legalism, that religious piety is just going to come back and just bite you every time. So don't waste your time. Don't don't put on a show. Don't be a pretender or a hypocrite realize and recognize that you cannot do anything, anything when it comes to the spiritual realm or for God, other than surrender and submit so that you can be fully used by God. So, all right, let's flip back again to the Old Testament here. We're going to finish up in Isaiah. We have two more passages, two more books to look at in the good old Old Testament here. We're going to get in Isaiah 61. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11, where again, um, Jesus in verse, I believe it's verse 17. Yes, he says, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. So that idea of anointing and washing is a, basically an idea of presenting yourself as well as you can, presenting yourself in a very, um, you know, in a very clean state to others, if you will. And he says that again, because it directly contradicts the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious, you know, pretenders and hypocrites where they're walking around, you know, all, you know, famished and, and looking as if they are doing something, you know, out of, you know, toward, you know, to please God when in reality, they're just displeasing him. But, um, when it comes down to it again that that idea of anointing and jesus says you know basically keep your chin up you know um look, look as if you're there's nothing going on in your life and there's no you know as if you're not doing anything just let it be a secret between the father and yourself and the father will will reward you openly more so, I guess I can take that instead of, you know, we don't seek out any kind of reward because we know we're unworthy. We know we're nothing but dirt and dust anyway. But basically our reward can be just God answering our prayer. That simple, that easy. And that's pretty much, I think, what the Lord was talking about there. So let's, um, let's again, flip, up to, flip back to Isaiah it's chapter 61. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11, where it says, again, talking about this idea of anointing. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers but you shall be named the priests of the Lord they shall call you the servants of our God you shall eat the riches of the gentiles and in their glory you shall boast instead you of your shame you shall have double honor and instead of confusion they shall rejoice in their portion therefore In their land they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth, and I will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles, and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, As the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. So looking at the notes here quickly again for Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 to 11, it says, This section describes the ministry of God's anointed as a healer and messenger of freedom and comfort. It also describes what God's ministry means to the nations. All this is due to God's covenant promise promises historically, some scholars see the anointed as Ezra, so we're going to look quickly at that word anointed because again, we're talking about anointing, where Jesus commands us to you know be anointed, wash our faces, and you know walk around you know with your chin up as you're serving the Lord essentially so Anointed. Ma shuka. Ma shushash. <laughs> I butchered that word, excuse me. But it means to anoint, to rub with oil, especially in order to consecrate someone or something. Appearing almost 70 times, that word refers to the custom of rubbing or smearing with sacred oil to consecrate holy persons or holy things. Priests and kings in particular, were installed in their offices by anointing. In Exodus chapter 40 verses 9 to 14, the tabernacle was to be anointed, as well as the altar, the laver, and the high priest's sons. The most important derivative of mashash is Messiah, anointed one. As Jesus was and is the promised anointed one, his title came to be Jesus the Messiah. Messiah was translated into Greek as Christos, thus he his designation Jesus Christ, so again, that's just looking at anointing, anointed. Again, it carries obviously a very weighty definition as Jesus being the anointed one, um, Jesus being the Messiah. And then that we get the term Jesus Christ from, you know, again, Messiah was translated into Greek as Christos, thus his designation Jesus Christ. So, you know, there's power in a name, there's power in words, and um, there's definitely, um a lot of significance to this act this act of being anointed with oil as you can see again the um altar you know the tabernacle was to be anointed with the altar the laver as well as the high sons priests so these are again very meaningful things meaningful acts and it's also cleansing it's it's um it's a an act that we do before God in obedience and something that God blesses because we do things out of faith and belief that God recognizes the actions and certain actions such as anointing ourselves or anointing whatever God commands us to anoint so All right, so we are going to look at the notes here again quickly for Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 14. Jesus quoted this verse and part of verse 2 in the synagogue of Nazareth. See Luke chapter 4, verses 17 to 20. He affirmed that it depicts the essence of his ministry. It also describes the basic ministry he passed on to his church. The day of vengeance belongs to Christ's second coming. The symbolism here depicts festive joy as part of the messiah's reign the spirit of heaviness refers to discouragement it is to be replaced by an abundant life the garment of praise many see in this text the power of worship filled praise to cast off oppressive works of darkness quickly. That note there is great for um, Isaiah sixty-one verse three because I can definitely attest when you know when you're going through tests, going through trials, when you're just feeling down, worship the Lord. Find a good uh, worship, good praise list, and worship God. Even you know in your car, at your house, by yourself, God will fill that place with His presence. And when God is there, he drives oppression and depression out of your life at that time. Trust me, um, even regardless of the battle you're going through, just press on, press forward. And I love to praise the Lord. And again, find a good playlist, find a good set of songs. I have multiple playlists, but I have one in particular It's so big and has so much variety to it. I listen to it every day and it is just such a blessing to just praise the Lord and to just get in his presence. And, you know, he where, you know, when we praise him, he shows up and Satan flees. I can really testify to the truth of that. So something very spiritual Again, just obeying the Lord and recognizing and saying, God, you're welcome here and he will show up. So continuing with the notes here, sons of the foreigner, a continued promise that the Gentiles would honor and serve God's purposes and that God's people would always supply priests for the nations. An unidentified speaker announces the personal benefits of the ministry of the anointed. Righteousness connotes deliverance. So again, that's Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 to 11. Um, I wanted to look at that verse in particular and that that um, chapter because um, it directly defines and addresses anointing. And again, that's just something where, you know, Jesus commands us when we're fasting, for example, or when we're doing anything for him to let it be done in secret, let it to be done Um, keep it between you and God and, you know, um, walk around as if, you know, life is normal and things are good. And as we saw with that, with that cool story from in, um, again, in the book of Daniel, when he, um, basically limits his, um, diet and his intake and does not partake of the The king's table, if you will, which are symbolic for sin, essentially, which would have been going against their customs and diet, um, (laughs) they end up in better condition and in a better state than the people that were partaking in that stuff. And in the end, they actually, the people that were partaking, their diet is changed to the diet of Daniel and his friends. And that's very symbolic, a very good picture of what happens when, you know, um, we recognize the lord we honor the lord in all that we do and and all of his commandments and um we avoid sin and avoid the ways of the world we typically end up in a better state and condition than most people in the world for a good reason and that's because you know god's ways are um the best ways to to simply put it and um there's you you will always reap much greater benefits when you sow things of the Lord and honor God than ever straying away or trying to do things on your own. And, um, you know, that picture there is very, uh, very powerful. When I look at that passage of that opening part of Daniel in chapter one, where he does um, basically consciously avoid the sinful things of the world, the sinful things that the king of the world the evil king basically was um you know offering him and he chooses to honor god and again it was a creative alternative he didn't disobey the king necessarily because he was under his command but he just did not fully partake in all the things that the king offered him and again they were sinful and he should not have partaken in them and he did not so all right we're going to finish up now here in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 15 to 25, where this addresses um, both the death of David's son that he had, that was the offspring of his affair with Bathsheba, and we are also going to look at verses 24 and 25 of Second Samuel chapter 12, because I love how it just gives a picture of God's grace and his goodness and his faithfulness to those that he loves. So again, we're going to start, we're going to read chapter um, 12 of Second Samuel verses 15 to 25. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, or Bathsheba, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted, and went in, and laid all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose, and went to him, and raised him up from the ground. But he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, While the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So interesting passage there. Uh, but let's finish up. Uh, that's just that's titled The Death of David's Son. Again, that's the child that he sat, had with Bathsheba you know, take note, it says the child he had with Uriah's wife in, in this particular passage. And because the the Lord is driving home the fact that that was, you know, a very, you know, look, David, unfortunately, one of his best known encounters is the whole David and Bathsheba thing. And, um, you know, he's, that's a, that's a blight on his life and his ministry. And, His character and who he was. Some people, that's all they know him for. And, you know, we know David as a great king, as a great man, as a great leader who made a mistake. But, um, you know, a lot of people like to hold our mistakes over our heads and only identify us with the bad things that we have done and overlook all the good. And that's just human nature, especially People are going to see things and people, how they want to see them and perceive them, and that's their call. But again, it's, you know, David, he, one thing he does, he fasts, you know, and the Lord does not honor his fast or his prayer. But it's interesting, again, when it says, David, after he found out his son was dead, he washes and anoints himself and changes his clothes and went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. So David, you know, once he realizes his son has passed, God has basically, you know, um, allowed him to do so. He, um, you know, David picks himself up off the ground, anoints himself before he goes into the house of the Lord and worships. And um, take note there, too. I mean, God takes his son away. Does he get angry at God? Does he blame God? No. I think David, excuse me, knew in his heart and soul that he reaped what he had sown and the death of his ill son was a byproduct of his sin. And the fact that not only did he have that child with a woman who was married to another man, a good man, it says Uriah was, and not only a good man but and not only does he you know sleep with the guy's wife, he eventually indirectly has Uriah killed in battle and um just so he can cover up what he had done and the verses before this uh if second Samuel chapter twelve to the beginning of verse fifteen, that's where um you know Nathan the prophet goes to David. And tells him about the you know the the, the story or the parable about you know um, you know basically it's it's basically alluding to what David had done, and David gets so angry and stands up and and gets so angry at the the one who committed the sin against this particular person in the story, but at the end, you know, um, Nathan says. That man is you. And I think they, it really struck David. And one, it showed that Nathan was a prophet and speaking directly on behalf of the Lord. And, you know, the Lord was revealing to David just how evil his action was. And again, it's a spirit that we have spiritual consequences to our actions and then we have real life consequences to our actions. And God, again, allowed David's child to pass. And, um, you know, it's, you know, the note here for verse 13 of Second Samuel chapter 12, it's interesting, as I look down here, it says, death was required by the law for both murder and adultery, even for a king. However, because of David's deep repentance, without making excuse, and more significantly, the promise of chapter 5 verse 12, God's grace is given though his family will experience the tragic effects of his sin. And as you can see, he does, you know, he murdered and uh, he was an adulterer. And, um, you know, part of that re- repercussion was, again, his son dying that he had with Bathsheba. But looking at verses 24 and 25 quickly, after David, you know, goes in, and after he says, you know, um, he's eating, his servants are kind of asking him, you know, what's up with this? It's kind of the opposite of what we would expect. Then he says, his he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I shall not go to him, but he shall, I, I can go to him, but he shall not return to me. That's an interesting um, passage there, actually, where David makes that note. And it's noted a lot um, where it basically confirms that people don't once they pass, they pass. They don't come back. These evil spirits that are on, you know, these paranormal encounters people have people thinking there's hauntings of certain people or ghosts or whatever they want to call them. I do believe there's a lot of evil entities and spirits in the world that sometimes do manifest themselves but make no mistake about it once you pass over you're you're not coming back you're in one of two places you're either waiting to be judged in the heart of the earth in Sheol or you are alive with Christ in heaven that's it so if you think you're going to you know um uh become a ghost or something when you die and haunt people or something to that effect. Again, there are very real spiritual entities that I do believe roam this earth and do manifest themselves at times Um, with the use of, for example, Ouija boards. I mean, you talk that directly opens a door to the spiritual realm. I've seen some incredibly terrifying footage of people using those Ouija boards, opening themselves up to spirits and either having those spirits be loosed in their presence or actually possessing them right there on the spot and having them do things that are very evil. And, um, but it's an interesting note here again, where David says, I shall not go to him. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Meaning basically he's gone and that's it. Um, so let's look at Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, because now he has taken Bathsheba as Uriah is now dead. She's a widow, unfortunately. So David marries her as well and takes, him on as a, takes her on as a wife and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jebediah because of the Lord. Um, Again, I just love that verse because it shows God's redemption. You know, he is displeased with the child that was the offspring of their adulterous and then turns out to be murderous beginning of their relationship but their next child is birthed and he's king solomon and solomon was loved by the lord solomon considered to be one of the wisest men to have ever lived he was the richest man to have ever lived accumulating a fortune of over what would be worth three trillion dollars today which is just unfathomable wealth um and uh Again, when you read the story of Solomon, you see he had a good heart. When the Lord basically gave him an open blank check and said, Here, ask of me anything and I'll give it to you. Solomon prayed for wisdom to rule over God's people. He didn't pray for a selfish want. He didn't pray for wealth. All of the things that Solomon had were a byproduct of his good-hearted, good nature and his ultimate just recognizing that um, you know, naked we come into this earth and naked we go. But again, Solomon prayed and asked for wisdom, and that's why he was considered, if not the wisest man to ever lived, one of the wisest men to ever lived and walked the earth, because that's what God blessed him with. So we'll quickly finish up here looking at the notes again for 2 Samuel chapter 15 or excuse me, chapter 12, verses 15 through 25, where it says, David went into his own house or chambers, not the sanctuary. The elders of his house were the oldest, most trusted, and influential of his personal aides. Do some harm, that is, harm himself in the throes of his grief. When he washed and anointed himself, David took away all the signs of grief. He goes to the house of the Lord or the Holy Tent, which was on Mount Zion. Here is a wonderful promise to all who have lost young children to death. I shall go to him. And then the notes. Well, quickly to stop there. That note for, uh, again, verse 20, where it says, So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. I like the note there where it says, He washed and anointed himself. David took away all the signs of grief. So, again, going back to Jesus, when Jesus tells us to anoint and wash ourselves, what he's telling us to take away all signs of grief or all indicators that we are fasting and maybe in a state of maybe discomfort, maybe hungry, maybe whatever we may, our flesh may be feeling and trying to manifest. Again, Jesus says, don't walk around exhibiting those traits or characteristics. All of this goes hand in hand. Again, we're full of the Holy Spirit God strengthens and undergirds us, and when we're going through these periods of fasting and prayer, then he will provide supernaturally so that we can walk out what Jesus commands right here for us to walk out. And then quickly looking at the notes here again for the last two verses we looked at um, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 24 and 25, where it speaks about David taking Bathsheba as his wife and then When they bear his son, Solomon, the note says Solomon means peace through Nathan. God sends the name Jedidiah, which means loved by the Lord as a testimony to the continuing grace of God. So, again, I mean, that's just a look at God's grace, his redemption, how he treats us with mercy, with tenderness with kindness, the same things that we're commanded to, you know, exhibit to our fellow person, fellow human beings through the grace and the indwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit, that they're the, it's, they're the same exact characteristics of God himself and what a mighty, great God we serve, you know, Um, so, all right, that's going to conclude our look At Again, this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18, where Jesus tells us, instructs us, commands us to fast only to be seen by God and God alone. So God bless and have a great day.